Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Welcome to this evening's installment of the National Humanities Center Virtual Book Club. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this evening's event. I want to thank you all for joining us tonight for the fifth in our series of virtual book club events. And I want to start this evening, given that it's a beautiful spring in the South, although it's raining here today in North Carolina, with a poem from the Belle of Amherst, Emily Dickinson, about May flowers. Pink, small, and punctual, aromatic, low, covert in April, candid in May, dear to the moss, known by the knoll, next to the robin in every human soul. Old little beauty, bedecked with thee, nature forswears antiquity. Now, let me share a little bit about our guest tonight. Over the last 20 years, Cara Robertson has become the leading expert on one of the most famous and controversial murder trials in American history. But the countless hours she has spent painstakingly researching the case of Lizzie Borden encompasses far more than the question of whether Lizzie actually committed the crimes. Cara has sought instead to understand why the Borden case captured the American imagination and to see not only what it reveals about 19th century American jurisprudence, but the Victorian era norms of class and gender that simultaneously shaped the trial and were troubled by it. Cara is particularly well suited to exploring these questions as she received her BA from Harvard, summa cum laude, in history and literature and women's studies before going to Oxford, where she received her doctorate in English language and literature. After Oxford, she studied law at Stanford and went on to serve as a clerk for two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Byron White and John Paul Stevens, before working as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague, where she was involved in the, pr the prosecution of Slobodan Milosevic and others for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Since that time, Cara has increasingly focused her attention on scholarly pursuits, for which she has been recognized with fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Humanities Center. 
And while working on this book and her other scholarly projects, Cara has found time to serve as a trustee of the National Humanities Center, and we are grateful immensely for that. Please join me in welcoming Cara Robertson. Uh, thank you, Robert. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, the National Humanities Center is, is where this uh, book project really launched in earnest. Uh, and so it seems uh, especially fitting to bring it all full circle here. Um, I'm also you know, immensely proud of the institution um, and I'm uh, glad to participate uh, in anything involved in it. Um, what I thought I would do tonight um, is to uh, talk about the case in three parts. Um, the, first, the first part being, you know, what, what drew me to the case? Um, why do I think it's worth talking about? Why, why on earth did I spend so long on it? Uh, the, second, the second part will be just a, a short discussion of, of some of the interesting points. Uh, many of you will know a lot about the story, but there might be some of you who don't know all the details. Um, and then thirdly, I'll circle back in answering the question, you know, did she or didn't she, to that first part, which is, you know, why should we actually care about this over a hundred years later? So first to first to why, I, you know, I think it's I think it's America's uh, er, unsolved mystery. Um, it's certainly still a why done it, even if you are fairly convinced that you know who done it. Um, it's reminiscent of those uh, golden age detective novels uh, in which, you know, all the suspects are gathered in some particular home. And you, once you rule out the possibility of a Mr. X sneaking in and committing the crimes, really you're left with the people in the house. And the idea is to, to figure out exactly where everyone was at any particular moment. Um, they're often called locked room mysteries, uh, you know, these kind of impossible crimes that require someone like Poirot to solve. Uh, and there is an element of that in this story, um, which is something that I'll talk about when I get to the uh, details of the case. Um, but more than that, it, it has an almost mythic quality. You know, I think that if you distill, uh, distill the case to its essence, it's the story of an extremely unhappy family um, in one house, um, and the it's a story of festering tensions uh, and secrets, and I think that that gives it, um, if not a mythic quality, certainly a, almost like a fairy tale quality, and and that that continues to draw people, uh, regardless of time and place. Um, I should say that for myself, those things were were hooks. But I was interested in the specificity of the story, you know, that, that if you return the case to its time and place, it provides uh, a wonderful lens onto that era that um, we can see through the details of the case, a lot of the assumptions and anxieties in the Gilded Age uh, or the Victorian, the late Victorian age in America um, and we can see a society that, you know, that mirrors our own in certain ways that um, we might find uncomfortable. 
And so I thought it was uh, worth pursuing for that, for that reason as well. Uh, as for the case itself, it begins on August 4th, 1892, when an elderly couple, Andrew Borden and his second wife, Abby, are found hacked to death in their Fall River, Massachusetts home. Fall River, as many of you will know, uh, was a mill town. Um, it was called the Manchester of America. And it was a town uh, of uh, a fair amount of hierarchy, gradations of social status, uh, where immigrant labor uh, provided, uh, provided the engine for the mills, uh, but the Yankee elite mostly owned them. And it is also a town where the peculiar topography mirrors the social hierarchy. So that, to put it a little crudely, the higher you live, the higher your status. Uh, and the Bordens, this couple that were found murdered, uh, lived in a small house near this commercial city center. You know, what was a, essentially a solidly middle-class district. Um, so it was shocking to, to find uh, people killed in that way. Uh, and particularly, you know, in, in a place that, that was otherwise fairly quiet, but still close enough to the center of town that it's, that it, you know, it was hardly like it was an isolated uh, farmhouse. The murders were so violent that some people speculated that Jack the Ripper himself had come to America. Uh, the details were pretty gruesome. Uh, first, Abby was felled by 19 blows uh, in an upstairs guest room. And then about an hour, an hour and a half later, after returning from um, a morning walk around town to attend to business, Andrew received 10 blows as he lay sleeping on the sitting room sofa. His face resembled raw meat, yet according to one of the first people on the scene, uh, the house itself was an apple pie order. And it, it is striking for those of us who are who um, are used to law and order or CSI, uh, how um, how many people just were wandering in and out of the crime scene on that particular on that particular day. But most importantly, it just seemed to be the work of a madman. And the um, the murders themselves would have uh, generated um, front page news, even had there not been this odd development. And the odd development was that there were two key things that seemed to rule out the murder as stranger that people expected to find. The first reason uh, that that seemed unlikely was that the house was locked both front and back and the only access was through a side door. Now, it was an open question whether or not it had actually been latched during the morning, um, but it was known that it was often within view of either a neighbor or uh, the Irish domestic housemaid, whose name was Bridget Sullivan. Uh, so it seemed, uh, it seemed unlikely that someone would have been able to get in that way unseen, though it was theoretically possible. But the second fact made that even more unlikely. Uh, and that was the interval between the murders. Uh, Mrs. Borden was killed about 9.30 in the morning and Mr. Borden was killed an hour to an hour and a half later. And so that meant that whoever had gotten in, if indeed someone had, uh, then that person would have had to hide inside the house 
uh, and wait for Mr. Borden to come home. Now, it raised the question of why anyone would want to kill Mrs. Borden at all, uh, because she was not someone who seemed to have any enemies. Mr. Borden seemed a possible target in that he was on the um, he was on the extreme end of Yankee frugality, let's say. Uh, he was known to be a bit of a miser uh, and a hard man in his business dealings. That's how he was described. So, you know, in theory, it was possible that there was a dispute, though, uh, again, it seemed unlikely. Uh, but with regard to the person hiding, um, it was made even less likely by uh, the layout of the house. The house had been a two-person, a two-family tenement with an upstairs and a downstairs layout um, made for individual families. And that meant that there were no halls in the house, that the rooms opened onto each other. So to get from one side of the house to the other, you had to walk through, um, you had to walk through actual rooms as opposed to the hallway. And, you know, in theory, there was a closet upstairs in, in which someone could have hid, but it's, you know, coupled together with the, um, the amount of time the person would have had to hide uh, and the difficulty of securing access to the house in the first place, it just seemed very unlikely. And that meant that instead of looking for um, an insane madman, the police turned their attention to the people inside the house. And aside from the Bordens, Andrew and Abby, who had been killed, there were three people known to be in the house that morning. The first uh, was a man named John Morse, who was Andrew Borden's brother-in-law. Uh, he was known to have left before Mrs. Borden died uh, to go visit friends across town. Uh, and in one of the many um, peculiar features of the case, he had an alibi that was straight out of an Agatha Christie novel. He remembered um, he remembered the number uh, of the conductor's cap uh, and other details that um, seemed to clear him and, uh, you know, let you, lest you get, you run away with that one. The conductor, it is true, didn't remember him specifically, but he did remember the six priests that Morse named as his uh, fellow travelers on that particular horse car. So we can rule him out for the moment. Um, that left two women who were in the house on the morning of the murders. Uh, one of them was Bridget Sullivan, whom I mentioned was the housemaid. Uh, she was known to be washing windows at the time that Mrs. Borden was killed. She had been spotted by uh, a neighboring housemaid. And if we're assuming that both uh, people were killed by the same person, then that seems to eliminate her. And so that left the Borden's younger daughter, Lizzie Borden. So that is Lizzie Borden. Uh, at the time of the murder, she was 32 years old. She did have an older sister who, who also lived at the house. Uh, both were unmarried, but the older sister was away visiting friends uh, at the time of the murder. So she was also not um, in the house. So as you can see from the picture, she seemed a pretty unlikely ax or hatchet murderer. She's just not at all what people would expect. Um, but there were a couple of suspicious things. The first was that she really couldn't account for her time 
uh, in any meaningful way. She said she was upstairs. She said she was downstairs. She claimed not to have heard anything. Um, so immediately the police were a little bit suspicious. Uh, but what really swung um, their interest in her direction um, was learning that she had allegedly tried to buy prussic acid uh, the day before the murder. There were um, three men in a pharmacy who swore that she was the woman who had asked for it. Uh, and although she had not received it, uh, it was it's a deadly drug that is only uh, sold upon doctor's prescriptions. Um, it was thought that that might explain why someone like Lizzie Borden would turn to a household implement rather than um, poison, which was seen as a woman's weapon. Um, the other the other main uh, issue was that further investigation disclosed that there that it was pretty unhappy house that that is essentially that that although it looked fairly normal from the outside uh, that actually it was the site of a sustained cold war between the generations Lizzie uh, and her older sister uh, apparently resented their stepmother uh, Lizzie in particular was quite forthright about it and openly disdainful and this uh, either, was caused or uh, brought to the surface by a property dispute about five years before the uh, murders. Mr. Borden uh, had attempted to heal the breach by giving uh, his daughter's property that was roughly equivalent to the daughter, the property he'd given his um, his wife, but uh, it didn't uh, it didn't work. And within that small house, the daughters conducted their lives as separately as they could, um, often receiving visitors in the upstairs guest room, the guest room that had been the, that later was the site of uh, Mrs. Borden's murder. Uh, and as you know, some indication of the of the ill will in the house after the bodies were discovered, uh, Lizzie corrected the police officer who interviewed her, saying that um, saying that Abby was not her mother when. He assumed that she was. So the circumstantial evidence doesn't look good for Lizzie Borden, uh, particularly uh, when you add the fact that although she had no blood visible at all on her person, it was known that she burned a dress on the Sunday after the murders, a dress that she said had been uh, stained with paint. So all of these things you know, together uh, suggest a good reason for uh, the police to move in her direction. Um, the prosecution uh, essentially would argue that that she was the only one with motive and opportunity to commit the murders. Uh, and that, you know, if you recall the image of Lizzie Borden, this was the this was the thing that propelled the case into the national consciousness more than more than the pointless murder, which might have been a passing headline. Uh, Lizzie Borden's trial was something, you know, equivalent for those of us who are old enough to remember uh, the O.J. Simpson trial. It was um, it was held in New Bedford, which is about 15 miles away from Fall River, uh, and 
uh, it became uh, the center of press activity uh, in a way that had not been seen before. The case um, comes to trial at, you know, during the heyday of yellow journalism and, and, uh, and the telegram is not that old or telegraph wires rather. And these were deployed um, so that people at home could follow it with the immediacy of something like, you know, cable news or Twitter updates. Uh, and it became quite a um, quite a sensation for that reason. On the one hand, the prosecution had this strong case, uh, but the defense was not idle. Uh, Lizzie Borden hired um, again, you know, to to gesture towards O.J. Simpson, a, a dream team of lawyers, uh, one of whom was the former governor of Massachusetts, and uh, they. Um, attacked the circumstantial case. Um, they questioned whether or not a woman really could have committed such brutal murders. Uh, it should be said that the scientific testimony was that, was that uh, with sufficient leverage, a woman could have inflicted those particular blows. But it was thought that a hatchet or an ax was, a, was not a woman's weapon, you know, that, that these seemed to be male murders. Uh, and in this respect, the class as well as the gender was was central. That you know, this is a woman who ticks all the boxes of respectable upper middle class womanhood. Uh, she was a Sunday school teacher. She was active um, in other ways in her church and local charities, and she presents uh, in the way that um, you would expect. Uh, she takes careful care uh, to look good in court. She dresses well. Um, one journalist describes her hat alone as a model for theater goers. Uh, and that, um, that interest in the way that she looks and trying to make sense of her um, uh, and, and to read her effectively as, as if she were um, uh, going to you know, disclose her her secrets in that way um, uh, gave a lot of fodder for the um, journalists covering the case. Um, I, in her favor also were, were a number of uh, suspicious characters who were seen wandering around the area. Um, and the defense was very clear to say that simply because we don't have an exact other explanation, that doesn't mean that Lizzie Borden necessarily was guilty. Um, the defense also pointed out that no um, murder weapon was definitively found. The suspicion was that there was a particular hatchet that's now in the Fall River Historical Society, for those who'd like to take a look, uh, that was about two and a half inches uh, wide, and it, the blade, and it, and it could well have made all the wounds, but the wounds were of different size, uh, and they never definitively proved that it was that particular weapon. They were also um, able to point, um, again, in shades of O.J. Simpson's trial, uh, to questions about how that weapon was discovered to suggest that there was some kind of orchestrated police conspiracy, that um, these men in power were, uh, were um, bumbling around trying to find uh, the killer and 
under intense pressure, they just fastened their suspicions upon the daughter and because she was a convenient target. But their greatest uh, success was really in excluding the, the pieces of evidence that were most compelling. Uh, the first being this um, alleged attempt to buy prussic acid uh, before the murders, uh, because that would have given the prosecution evidence of intent uh, and punctured the defense contention that Lizzie Borden was simply an innocent bystander who was in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, and would have explained how a well-bred young woman might have turned to a readily available household implement uh, to execute a plan that she had concocted earlier. Uh, and they also were able to exclude uh, her inquest testimony um, she she had been given uh, morphine before the testimony, uh, and it is possible that that um, made her a little loopy. Um, it was known that she uh, contradicted herself time and time again, and that provided, uh, you know, evidence of what of what we would call consciousness of guilt. You know, someone who's someone who's uh, saying something that can't be true uh, because they know that saying the truth would put them in a bad place. Her story, incidentally, was that uh, at the time of her father's murder, she was out in the barn uh, eating pears and looking for a sinker. Uh, and the police found that just flatly incredible. Um, but uh, the defense is able to turn that sort of thing into an argument in favor of Lizzie Borden's normality, that she's essentially very much like uh, like any other woman in her position, you know, days are, days are much the same. Um, how can you really know exactly what time you started your ironing or went out to look for a sinker? And why wouldn't you stop and eat a pair if you feel like it? You don't have a, a life of business um, to take you out in the world. Uh, and um, it was in fact a sign of her um, adherence to proper um, femininity, that she was someone who couldn't really account for her time, that she was someone who was just at home. Uh, so it was a hard fought case, but the um, prosecution, you know, lost its best evidence. The, uh, this is the, you know, this is the non-spoiler or the spoiler alert time rather. Um, the uh, uh, jury retreated to consider its verdict and they found they were unanimous on the first ballot, but decided that they'd better wait an hour and a half so that they would look like they had been fairly deliberative. Um, when they returned, which was still much faster than expected, um, the judges had to be recalled from a, a walk. Uh, Lizzie Borden is, was acquitted, uh, and this leads the um, the courtroom to erupt in cheers, followed by um, cheers outside that apparently could be heard um, as much as a mile away. Uh, and Lizzie Borden returned to Fall River. Uh, there, however, the verdict was a little bit more um, mixed. Uh, um, one journalist said that said that it reflected the class line as well, um, much in the way that her arrest was viewed as um, 
if anything, a bit tardy by many of the Irish Catholics uh, and other people who resented the Protestant elite um, in Fall River. Um, the, uh, the organs of the Fall River um, uh, immigrant community generally viewed her as someone who just gotten away with murder. Um, interestingly, um, they had viewed her self-possession at trial uh, in exactly the opposite way as her defenders. Um, they referred to her as the Sphinx of Coolness and uh, thought that it indicated that self-possession, uh, some kind of unnatural, almost masculine nerve versus the uh, sign of ladylike bearing or um, inborn dignity that proved her innocence to her defenders. So the verdict seemed to be split uh, and Lizzie Borden was um, thought, uh, thought she could you know, resume her own life. She went to church uh, and there she was greeted by empty pews all around her. This sent the message pretty clearly, though it was a bit of a shock because the church had provided um, the bedrock of her support during the trial. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's almost a tribal um, or anthropological quality to the punishment that's exacted by her, um, roughly speaking, her, her social peers, or at least the people that she um, wanted to be her social peers. Uh, she's increasingly shunned. Um, she and her older sister, however, moved from the cramped family house that had been a source of some dissatisfaction to the equivalent of a mansion in the elite Hill District. Uh, the location of the Borden house um, was thought to be one of, one of uh, the sources of dissatisfaction that Lizzie and her sister thought that they should live in a slightly grander style. Uh, and that's something that they achieved um, with their inheritance. Uh, but even then, uh, despite, despite her sister's stalwart support during the trial, about 12 years later, they had a, um, a disagreement. Uh, it remains a bit mysterious. It may have been about an actress uh, or an acting troupe that Lizzie Borden was a little too friendly with. It may well have been about a handsome chauffeur um, who had a bad reputation. But in any event, Emma moved out uh, and the sisters never spoke again. They died within about um, a month of each other in 1927. And uh, I think that one of, the, one of the parts of the story uh, that interests me the most is that ending that uh, Lizzie Borden, who could have gone anywhere, decided instead to return to Fall River and live the life that, you know, had been denied her earlier, um, even in the face of uh, the social disapproval, that rather than take her inheritance and be somewhere where she could be at least um, not notorious, if, you know, if not entirely private, she chose to remain there. And I think um, it shows the nerve that people noticed during the trial that um, that kind of self-possession um, that seems so troubling to her contemporaries. 
that is the that's the overview of the story. There are many, as I said, there are many more details which I'm happy to discuss if anyone's interested in it. Um, but it does bring me to the question of of uh, you know did she or didn't she? Which is uh, again a non spoiler alert. This is a question I don't answer in the book because I thought it was important to be as uh, even handed as possible. Uh, there's a way in which um, well, I think when you, if you decide one way or the other, you know, it's impossible to be a fair chronicler of what actually happens because the story isn't neat, as I've indicated, albeit in a very abbreviated way. And there are, there's evidence that points in both directions. Uh, but I think at its heart, it's uh, very troubling to think that someone like Lizzie Borden could have committed these crimes, not perhaps for the reasons that the her contemporaries were um, thought it was impossible. For example, not because of her uh, her gender or her class. So this is what Lizzie Borden looked like in her old age. Um, she's a harmless-looking old lady on her um, on her piazza. That's what they call the the back porch in Fall River with her beloved dog, Laddie. And so part of the reason I think this is this remains one of the um, one of the uh, most famous unsolved uh, mysteries in American history is that we know a bit about Lizzie Borden's life before the murders, and we know about Lizzie Borden's life after the murders. The murders happen roughly in the middle. Uh, and she was a pretty unremarkable person uh, there. There's evidence that she you know, had a particularly strong nerve um, and we know that there was this discord in the household. Um, but it is hard to look at those kinds of pictures and to say, yes, this is, this is someone who would have, um, as a result of some dispute like that, uh, resorted to the kind of uh, carnage that we see in the crime scene photos and which I spared you. Uh, tonight, um, but I would say that that uh, insofar as we want to answer the question, that I'm sort of in the same position I, as I was when I started, which is that it's very hard to believe for reasons that that um, I alluded to that someone was able to sneak in, uh, commit these murders, and leave without being seen. Um, but at the same time, um, it's also hard to imagine that Lizzie Borden would have been able to do it. The timetable is very, very tight. Uh, so I'm comfortable leaving it as a mystery. Um, and I don't mind that it's uh, unresolved. I think that it's an uncomfortable story even if we know what the solution is, because there is no obvious explanation for, for why that could possibly be satisfactory. Um, I think, however, for the jurors, it was less a question of reasonable doubt than uh, an absolute certainty that someone like Lizzie Borden could have committed the murders. Uh, and I think I should probably... Um, leave it there. Uh, and then I'm happy to respond to any questions that you might have. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Cara.
And we have several questions from um, our listeners and viewers. So uh, first question, uh, questioner asks, who was the beneficiary of Andrew Borden's estate? Uh, Lizzie and Emma. And uh, that's a question that in some respects goes to, it goes to the motive. Um, and it would, it would explain the order of deaths. I mean, if you, have, if you assume a financial motive, which no one at the time was really willing to do because the, the alleged murderer was a woman and it was considered not really a feminine motive, because um, Mr. Borden died without leaving a will, uh, the fact that Abby was killed first meant that she didn't inherit anything from him. So uh, the daughters received um, his entire estate. Uh, two other questioners are, are asking about connections with other famous murder cases. One uh, asks about the John Day Ramsey case and asks if that's an example of a locked room mystery. Yeah, I, I, uh, I guess it's it's a bit similar, right? That it it's, it seems um, very hard for someone to, to have come in from the outside, uh, but uh, and I actually don't know what the solution was. I think at one time there it, it was thought that actually there was this stranger, but there was suspicion that um, suspicion turned to members of the family, as I recall, uh, and part of the difficulty is imagining that that. Um, a parent would, if, if that was who it was, would do such a thing. But I, uh, I'm not as knowledgeable about that as I, as, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm not knowledgeable enough to answer that question. Well, there's also a question about the Papin sisters of France and if uh, they might've heard about Lizzie Borden. Yeah, that I don't know. Um, but that's an interesting, um, an interesting idea. Uh, one of the, uh, and and I, there are some people um, who think that Lizzie and Bridget were in it together, um, which would help explain both the, the time, um, the you know the timing, the you know how it's possible for for all of it to be commit for all the the murders to be committed and for the crime scenes to be so clean other than the bodies. Um, but there's really no um, contemporary evidence of that. I think had Bridget been a likely suspect. Um, given that the police's first instinct was to look around for um, immigrants who might be uh, up to no good, uh, that she would have been in big trouble. Another questioner asks about uh, how unusual uh, might it have been to have a woman of Lizzie Borden's class stand trial for a murder in the 1890s? Yeah, I think that that's the, that's the key. Um, there, there are other women who are um, uh, who commit or who are accused of murders, um, but they're not they're not like Lizzie Borden, uh, and they're also um, usually not uh, charged with committing those kinds of murders. The the most famous case in Massachusetts that's roughly contemporaneous that was a few years earlier is a woman named uh, Sarah Jane Robinson, who isn't of Lizzie Borden's class. Um, and she was known as the Borgia of Somerville because she um, she used poison um, and her relatives, uh, her heavily insured relatives died with this suspicious regularity. Uh, and so that 
the the money motive was was unusual and and um, suggested that there she was somehow particularly monstrous. Um, but the poison was something that made it comprehensible. And so the combination of the of the class uh, and the weapon, you know, the fact that this is a very male coded crime, um, it just puts it in a totally different category. So was it anomalous to have such prominent attention to gender in legal legal argumentation at that time? And uh, the questioner also asked about uh, the lack of attention uh, during the trial to Lizzie's being unmarried. Mm-hmm. Well, it was. Um, I mean, she's clearly a spinster, uh, or rather, I mean, that was the that was what they they called her um, at the and unlikely to be married. Though it should be noted that uh, Abby's stepmother was older than Lizzie was at the time of the murders when she married um, Andrew. So it wasn't impossible for someone um, to be married, but it was, it, you know, it was pretty unlikely uh, that she, she would. Um, but it was considered, you know, as somebody who was active in good works, it was, it was a respectable position to have. And she had a number of friends who were um, in some cases married, but, but were often um, unmarried, they were school teachers, they did similar, they spent their days kind of in similar ways. Um, and, uh, you know, living at home with her father uh, was a perfectly respectable thing for her to do and not considered, you know, especially unusual, uh, even if it wasn't the norm. Another questioner asked about uh, the most challenging aspect for you of researching Lizzie Borden and did the fame of Lizzie Borden's trial make it difficult for you to separate myth from fact? Yeah, I think that the, you know, the key with all these, these projects is to kind of peel away the layers of the myth. Um, and uh, it was clear that a lot of things that people believed about the case or that were handed down through secondary literature weren't really supported um, by the primary uh, sources. So going back to the trial transcript and the contemporary newspapers and um, other local records um, made it possible to uh, rebuild the record, you know, from the from the ground up, as it were, uh, and to look at it from the perspective of of her contemporaries. One of the um, one of the things that's most striking, I think, uh, when you're dealing with a famous case like that is, is the way in which the interpretations uh, change over the generations and that they seem to reflect the preoccupations of the, of the era in which the, those interpretations are written. Uh, it's sort of, um, you know, in the same way that Lizzie herself could be read in opposing ways, that the case itself is a bit of a cultural Rorschach test. Um, and that I, I wanted to guard against um, making assumptions that had more to do with, you know, my own opinions uh, or my uh, the time I'm living in versus versus um, what was actually happening uh, in 1892 and 1893. How about the class comp composition of the jury itself? Yeah, if that's an interesting question. They they. Um, you know, we think of we think of jury consultants as being a modern um, <laughs> a modern invention, uh, but the both the prosecution and the defense investigated um, the prospective jurors, uh, and I have the the notes from the police um, investigations, and they were clearly looking for solid types. Most of them 
were not particularly uh, wealthy. Um, there was one uh, um, real estate owner, as I was described in the um, uh, in the newspapers, uh, who ends up as the foreman. Um, but most of them were um, sort of a little bit below uh, Andrew Borden in status, uh, and so. I think the thought was that was that you know that they would aspire, uh, and to someone to be someone like him, that they would view him as a success, and thus be very unlikely to think that um, their own daughter uh, would be so ungrateful as to want to um, as to object to the to way that they uh, ran their households. The defense strategy throughout is to um, make. Uh, make Lizzie Borden seem as much like uh, one of the jurors' wives or daughters, uh, because then that, you know, makes it inconceivable that she um, would have killed her father. Uh, it, interestingly to me, you know, pretty much everyone seems to think that they, they could understand why, uh, um, why Lizzie Borden would want to kill her stepmother, because I suppose because of the fairy tale trope. You know that there is this idea that that she must have been um, a wicked stepmother in some way. The I should say the contemporary evidence does not bear that out. She's a sad figure. Um, so uh, another questioner asks um, about your personal stories behind the final chapter about the locked file cabinet. Is there more to tell? Did you make efforts to gain access? Uh, and do you have your own suspicions about what might be in that locked? file cabinet oh well thank you for the thank you for the question um so uh the um the questioner is is referring to the fact that um the law firm uh that was founded by the former governor of massachusetts is still in operation in springfield massachusetts uh and it's just sort of by happenstance um it you know it is continued Whereas uh, the other lawyers were solo practitioners and their files just kind of went home with them. Uh, but because it's continued in operation and the um, former governor, whose name is Robinson, died unexpectedly a few years after the trial, his files on Lizzie Borden still remain in possession of the law firm. And their position is that they're, um, they're still bound by this continuing duty of confidentiality. Uh, and so they, um, they believe that not only can they not disclose the files, they can't even really describe them. Though I do know that they have been preserved and nothing else from that era, you know, seems to have received that kind of attention. Uh, and I asked the managing partner, um, you know, why save it if your position is that you can't disclose it? Uh, and he he said, well, you know, it would be abhorrent, that was the word he used, to, to destroy it because it, you know, it is of historical value. So we're in this, um, it presents this, this conundrum, you know, so that, so that, for example, I have seen the papers uh, from the prosecution. I've seen the, the papers of uh, Lizzie Borden's other main defense lawyer, who was her local lawyer. He um, uh, intriguingly uh, deposited his Lizzie Borden files in a hip bath um, 
in his attic and they eventually made their way uh, through a complicated series of um, descents into the Fall River Historical Society. Uh, and they're very useful uh, in terms of um, trying to get a sense of what, you know, what the de defense strategy was and also did they interview the witnesses and what was their take on the witnesses. And so my expectation is that, is that, um, is that, you know, if we ever find the Robinson files that they will reveal something quite similar, but it's very tantalizing to think about, um, you know, one last unsolved mystery associated with the case. Could you say uh, some more, or could you say something about the response of immigrant communities of, at the time to the case, and, and were these responses at all shaped by attitudes toward uh, Bridget, Bridget O'Sullivan, the domestic servant? Yeah, so the so well, one of the ways that, um, well, there are I guess there are two main ways I, I think of to, to get that information, I mean, one was, as I referred um, to the Irish Catholic paper in the in the town, the different ethnicities had different newspapers, uh, and you see that uh, the way that they present the story is very um, di diverges um, diverges often um, over the character of, of Bridget Sullivan versus uh, Lizzie Borden, uh, and the other the other way is through um, the letters sent to the police and to the prosecution. Um, which offer a lot of helpful advice, like do the Bordens have an upright piano and have you looked at it, you know, that kind of thing. But they also contain a lot of um, uh, evidence of hostility to immigrants, um, assumption that, that um, it must be Bridget and she must be operating under instructions from the Pope, uh, other, other kinds of conspiracy theories like that. Uh, and then, and then uh, opposing that are people, um, presumably from those communities, who um, object to the way that the police seem to be uh, treating Lizzie Borden much more tenderly than if she were a mill hand. Um, so a case like this, you know, with all of the of the um, the clamor on on the different sides, gives you a, a nice window into those into those kinds of attitudes. Um, it should be said that someone like Bridget Sullivan would have been thought capable of using a hatchet or an ax because it was often within the duties of a, of a housekeeper to, to kill animals um, or to chop wood. Um, she didn't actually have to do that at the Borden house, uh, but that wouldn't have seemed quite as far-fetched. Another questioner asked about, uh, asked you to elaborate a bit more on Lizzie's sphinx-like stone-faced aspect during the trial. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's just, um, she just doesn't quite behave in the way that uh, she seems to be expected to behave. So uh, she doesn't break down. She seems, uh, I would say, the things that were most disturbing to me was when it seemed like she was just sort of enjoying it, you know, enjoying the attention or, um, uh, I mean, but she also clearly uh, behaves in ways that are, you know, designed to show that, that she is in fact a proper lady. She hides her face beneath her fan um, at, you know, when gruesome testimony is, um, 
is offered. One of the reporters notices that um, her reaction to that kind of gruesome testimony or um, really awful exhibits like the skulls of Andrew and Abby that are presented at trial um, vary depending upon who's presenting the evidence so that when it comes from the prosecution, she hides her face in her fan. Uh, but when it comes from the defense, she follows it with a lot more interest. Um, but the journalist steps back from the implications of that and uh, doesn't suggest that she's feigning in a way that suggests guilt. What he says is that she's feigning in a way that suggests femininity, that um, you know, women are basically like that. You know, they, they play this, they have to play these um, artificial roles. Uh, and so um, that's actually a sign in her favor in his, in his view, which just shows you that, that um, I think that most people had decided one way or the other uh, and then used the behavior to bolster their opinion as opposed to finding something uh, really um, important from an evidentiary perspective in her demeanor. Did the jury talk to the press after the verdict? Uh, a few did, yes. Um, and they just they just sort of rejected that it was um, was impossible, you know, that they didn't view it as a particularly close case. I mean, as indicated by the fact that, despite the fact that it had been a, you know, two and a half week trial, which was unusually long for that time, that they, um, that they came to a conclusion so readily. Uh, they, they had been, um, they were sequestered uh, during the trial and one of the um, features of that was that they, were, um, they weren't allowed to drink anything. So they went very quickly to the hotel bar to have a drink together and had a reunion um, or had re regular reunions uh, until they started dying off, um, which indicated as one said that they were a jolly bunch. They also took a picture together to memorialize the trial and sent it to Lizzie Borden. And she wrote uh, letters to each one of them, thanking them for being her deliverers, as she put it. Can you talk a bit about uh, film or TV adaptations or depictions of the trial? Have there been? And are they yeah, good? It's, a, it's a case that provides a lot of um, uh, fodder for um, people who are well, pretty much any any genre you can possibly imagine, uh, ballet, opera, play, as well as you know, TV and film. Um, there's a, um, I, you know, I, I suppose I recommend there's a there's an Elizabeth Montgomery TV movie from the '70s um, that's uh, fairly earnest. It's a little, um, it's a little creepy, uh, but <laughs> it's it hews fairly close to the story. It's a little bit. Um, it's a little bit outlandish uh, about um, Lizzie Borden's motivations, but it it has a um, it features a kind of blank heroine, which I think um, it may or may not be totally accurate, but it at least allows the viewer to you know, weigh the evidence rather than um, rather than uh, revealing uh, some essential characteristic that would have made her definitely a killer or not. Um, the most recent movie um, is called Lizzie, and it features a relationship between Bridget and Lizzie. And it 
um, it's definitely the film for the Me Too era because it really piles on um, Lizzie's motivations, you know, to make it to make it a kind of comprehensible crime that um, Mr. Borden is really bad, uh, and her uncle is trying to get her committed. Uh, plus, she has epilepsy. I mean, they're just they're just a variety of of things that that put her in an impossible position, so that. Um, their plot is a, you know, is sort of a blow against um, patriarchy in general. And I, you know, I think that's a good example of um, something that really is more about the moment in which it's made than any kind of essential truth about the mystery or how um, Lizzie Borden herself and her contemporaries would have seen this crime. Well, thank you so much, Carl Robertson, for a wonderful presentation and conversation. Thank you for answering so many questions. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to our virtual book club from the National Humanities Center. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the National Humanities Center and our programs, please go to nationalhumanitycenter.org. I'm Robert Newman. Thank you again for joining us. Be safe and be well. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.